Talking to Radiance and Cinnamon from Black Lives Matter. I am Tyson. I'm Justin. And uh, we're going to chat about what's going on with this movement that's getting a lot of attention around Bloomington Normal these days. Uh, but first, Justin, can you uh, tell them a little bit about our, our sponsor? Yeah, the Podbean's. Uh Pod BN is able to be on the air because of Play Normal Esports. They're located at 802 South Eldorado Drive in Bloomington. Uh, right now, they have a day camp. Uh, they're getting ready to start. You can hop on their website at playnormalesports.com to register. You can get your kids in there, playing some games, have some social interaction, but still be socially responsible. They'll make sure they have everything clean and distance. So take a look at them at playnormalesports.com. All right. So now that the bills are paid... Um, Hi guys, welcome. Thanks for doing this today. Yeah, Thank thanks for having um, So, first, could you just take turns telling us a little bit about your history in the community and how you came to be involved with Black Lives Matter? Radiance, you want to go first? Okay, sure. Um, so, I grew up around here in Bloomington Normal. I've gone to schools in Bloomington Normal my whole life so far, um, predominantly white schools, of course. And what that taught me was internalized racism, right? Like, I think that happens to every person of color at a predominantly white school. You're trying so hard to make yourself into some more acceptable version of yourself, um, buying into the narrative. You know, first it starts with like hating my hair and then hating my culture and then hating my people. And that was my story growing up in schools here. Um, and then I was radicalized in, um, if you all know, Stefan Robinson and his class in at normal community high school, his sociology class um, was the first thing that began to open my eyes. Um, and then I went to college at ISU and it's still a PWI, but it had more than like three black people, which is what I was used to in my classes. And some of them. Uh, PWI is a primarily white institution. Predominantly white institution. Yeah. Predominantly white. Okay. Yeah. And so some of the, some of my friends from there, you know, they came from predominantly black areas and they just grew up learning something very different about themselves. And for the first time I was like, whoa, like black people can love themselves. Right. And so that was the beginning of the end for me right there, learning to love myself and be proud of myself as a black woman. And all of a sudden I was um, aware that the things I had experienced, you know, from every microaggression to every like blatant act of racism wasn't a reflection of myself, but of society's inability to see me. Um, and that's when I started getting involved right then, um, first through my education, um, through my classes, and then through finding different organizing spaces in Bloomington, um, one of them being Black Lives Matter. Okay. Well, there's a lot there to unpack, um, <laughs> but uh, let's, uh, let's let Cinnamon take a turn, too, then. Yeah, so I got started in Black Lives Matter. Um, I... You know, started the organization with a couple other folks back in 2016. Um, and I mean, the reason why we started it was because we realized there was a lot of other organizations and groups uh, helping other folks, but there, there, there wasn't a group like Black Lives Matter here in Bloomington Normal. Um, and so we thought it was important to, to start the group uh, because 
we as black folks here in Bloomington Normal, we have needs that are unmet. Um, and so we thought we were the folks to, to do something about that and, and to create some change. So um, I've been a part of the organization since then. And, and how I've gotten here is just <laughs> growing up black in America. I mean, my situation is similar to Radiance growing up uh, in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, which was all white as well, Growing th- going through school, same thing. Um, and I mean, more and more just started questioning, uh, <laughs> you know, reflecting on questions like, well, well, why is your hair like that? Well, why is your skin like that? Um, I mean, that's that started in grade school and, and going through that that just kept growing. And um, then I came down here to ISU for school as well, uh, met some good folks and just continued that, you know, self-education um, and, and continue that. But I'm. I'm glad that we started Black Lives Matter here. I think we've done some great things uh, and continue to do that. Uh, so here a theme in both of you, your um, backstories about messages that taught you um, to hate yourself or at a minimum not to love yourself. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that, like some experiences in particular that stand out to you? Yeah. Um, for me, you know, it started in grade school with all the folks around me. Uh, there was no other folks besides my sister who went to the same school that I did, right. That, that really looked like us. Um, so questions about our hair, um, the only books in the library that I could find was Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, (laughs) so there, there wasn't much teaching, from school and in the environment that I grew up in um, around black culture. Um, But, you know, my father was having to do that education at home. um, And then it continued going into junior high school and high school. uh, A sense of kind of segregation, right? Like all the black kids sat together in the cafeteria. Um, (laughs) And so why is that, right? Um, to, to create this sense of culture and unity at at least a little that we can in that small town. Um, yeah. Um, so it's, uh, you know, Justin and I, uh, being, um, follically challenged white guys, we don't know much about hair in general, let alone the, the struggles of black hair and black hair for women. So, um, can you, uh, can you help me understand a little bit more about how that happens? For me, it was just everybody, maybe it wasn't necessarily what they told me, but everybody had uh, long, straight, lighter colored hair, it felt like. Um, And it was, you know, well, once I got to college, it was things like, you know, people wanting to touch or wanting to, um, you just, you feel like an, like this exotic creature everybody's never seen before, like has only ever seen on TV. Um, but I just remember when I was, from when I was younger, I wanted my hair to be long and straight, um, like everybody else's hair. Um, and when you don't have representation of other people who look like you, then you don't know how to like how you look. And I grew up in a mixed race household. Um, and we just, we just didn't talk about race. It just wasn't something we talked about. It was, um, until I got into college and I started bringing that home with me. Um, but I think what that did was 
you know, there was, it was supposed to be a message of tolerance, you know, of, um, we don't have to talk about it because we're the same and nobody should be treating you different because we're the same. And I think that was more hurtful than it was helpful, right? Because we're not the same, like we're different and we need to talk about that. Um, and when I was just being told like, you know, we're the same, we're the same, what it did was like crush my differences and I wasn't able to explore my differences. And I thought that I had to then be like everybody else. Um, so that's where it started for me. I've heard that as a, um, as a, like uh, almost a stereotype, like that. Can I can I touch your hair thing? But people really do that. Like people yes. really ask you that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And they wow. typically don't ask. They just touch. They just go for it. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um. Justin, yeah, I've been dominating yeah, so sorry. far. <laughs> I was, I've just been listening, really. Um, I, I want to kind of steer the conversation more towards what's been going on lately. Um, what What is Black Lives Matter's thoughts and your personal thoughts on some of the things that's been happening in our community over the last, you know, three months? Whoever wants to tackle it first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it has been great to see more folks becoming involved um, in Black Lives Matter, but also this understanding of of black lives and uh the struggles that that black folks face on a daily basis so i think it's good that more of the community is becoming involved uh but our hope and our want and our need is for people to to stay involved it's not a trend it's not just a hashtag um this is you know a lifelong fight so to to keep people um engaged and committed to to this fight you said more people are involved. Is is Black Lives Matter the is is it an organization that keeps track of like members or, or anything or like do you have an idea of the growth over the last couple months? Yeah. So when we started out in 2016, I mean, it was uh, in the mix of a lot of other you know social uh, unrest, and then especially after the presidential election, a lot of folks were moved to become more involved in the community. Um, so we saw huge community involvement. I mean, our first public meeting had over 400 people. Like, I think that says a lot to um, people's concern, but then that slowly dies off, right? We still have a good number of folks, but people who are continuously engaged, um, that, that kind of dies down. Uh, but then with in the, in the past couple of months, um, again, with Black Lives Matter being in the public narrative so much, when we had our, our first public meeting in a while, I mean, that's another 500 folks that show up. And that's 500 folks who are coming out in the middle of, of a pandemic. So, um, I mean, we do keep track of emails and, and folks who want to be involved and, and try to do it that way. Um, but I'm, I'm glad to see folks coming back out again. What, what is your perspective of how, um, people, um, look at Black Lives Matter locally? Like, do you see you guys, I mean, obviously there's going to be people that support you and people that don't support you, but in general, the people that kind of don't pay attention, but just kind of hear the headlines and stuff on the news. How, how do you feel like you guys are being perceived locally? And has that changed, has that changed over the last couple of years? Well, one thing I I would point out is um, 
people who like, okay, so it happened on your show, your last show too. Like when we talk about defunding the police, um, that is, you know, a bold statement. And so we get people who, um, you know, they, they're with us and they're for Black Lives Matter, but then they still, I think the word you y'all used here was talk about like extremist rhetoric on your last show, right? Which is actually comical to me, right? Like, and the McLean County Democrats also did this, right? They tried to redo the slogan. Um, but I think that's a display of privilege. It's a privilege to be able, you know, to sit around and waste time making the message more of like palatable to like moderate white people. Um, and I think that that's our struggle right now is that, um, that we're trying to, you know, Black Lives Matter, it's a progressive movement and um, this, people are trying to bring it more central. And I don't, and I think that's where the tension might be between the, um, you know, when you're talking about how we're perceived in the community um, as people wanting Black Lives Matter to make their demands um, more, more palatable. And I, and that's not a direction that the movement's going to go in, right? Right. Well, I mean, I'll just speak from my perspective um, and, and kind of where that question was coming from is I see at least the I mean, I'm in my own bubble as well as like everybody else. But I see it people that I probably wouldn't have seen support Black Lives Matter two years ago over the last three months come out and publicly support them. And I don't I was asking that question to see if that's just my perception of, of my bubble that I'm seeing or if you guys are seeing that as an organization where it's like, where where did all these people come from kind of thing? Um, because, I mean, I have seen, like I said, especially on my social media timelines, so many people that are like, oh, that's awesome. Like, hey, we're better friends than I thought. Like, you know, those type of comments that they're making that really make me feel better about my community than I did like a couple of years ago. Yeah. And I and I um. I take what you said about the conversation in our last episode. First, thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, second, I think, um, uh, you know, Justin mentioned this on the show. We, we need to kind of talk directly with some people instead of just, you know, assuming that we have the, um, you know, all the information and the perspective. And I, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I can't remember if I actually said this on the show or if I was just thinking it or saying it later on to people. But if you're like, arguing about the like strategy and the tactics and the rhetoric that you're like having like a meta conversation. You're like, you know, how do these, let's take a step back and talk about like, you know, let's critique the strategy here as opposed to really like engaging in the uncomfortable conversations that you need to be having to make progress on this. And so, um, you know, that is a, uh, you know, privilege to use that word since, me not being immediately affected day to day by this in my personal life, being a white man, I can do that kind of like academic exercise and step back, but I'm trying to kind of resist that urge to, to do that. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but no, it does. Like that's exactly the point that I was getting at. Like it's, it's black folks at the center of these problems. And so it has to be black folks at the center of the solutions. Right. And then, um, now that we've said like what the solution is, right. It's, it's, the same across the nation, Black Lives Matter saying defund the police, that's the solution. And so then it's white folks' job to amplify that solution. It's mm-hmm. it's like their job to explain it to other white folks, to get their moderate parents and their conservative grandparents on board. Like that's not, it's not like we're in the middle of the struggle, right? It's not our job to do that dinner table work. It's yours. Yeah. And I, um, I'd be, um, I think our conversation with Justin and me and Steve is pretty typical of the conversation I've been having with people in my demographics about it of like, okay, let's, 
initial reaction, defund the police, like what anarchy. And then let's get, let's get below that. Let's talk about like, okay, what does this really mean to us? And there are, th- are things we can agree. Hopefully that's where you want us to go. I mean, is that, is that the right direction <laughs> on it? But, yeah. I can't so. see me nodding. Yeah. I'm nodding. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, so I guess let's tease that apart from your perspective too. We, we mentioned some things, but I'd be curious about, you know, one step beneath that slogan that gets so much attention, what comes to mind, um, for you guys, like, what would your top priority be under the defund the police header? All of it. <laughs> so, so what's that look like to you? Because I mean, obviously, people are taken back by the yeah. by that line, and and I think um, the more clarity we can bring to that, the better it is for someone to understand. So, like, what what does it mean? And then after you explain what's it mean, what's that look like after you get your, your desired result? Yeah. So when we talk about defunding the police, we're also at the same time talking about investing in our community, specifically the black community, right? So we're taking money away from the police to fund things like jobs, educational opportunities, community centers, um, and, and other uh, community resources that are needed. Because when we think about, you know, oftentimes people are like, well, what would we do if the police didn't exist, right? What would happen with all the crime that exists? Well, let's just think about crime in general. Most often crime is happening because people can't meet their basic needs. Uh, so if we invested in those basic needs, we would see a huge reduction um in, in a need for, for policing. Mm-hmm. And when we say defund the police, we don't mean reform, right? Any attempt to water down that demand is co-opting the movement. And settling for reform is, one, a waste of momentum right now. And two, like I mean, in my opinion, a laugh in the face of like true justice. Um, I, To me, reform is a compromise like, I'm not willing to make. It's a concession that allows like the larger corrupt system to remain completely intact. Um, and, and we're not falling for that anymore. Right. Because we've seen reform happening right now, right? We've got body cams, we're banning, you know, the chokehold, uh, <laughs> but none of those things have ended the violence that police are exerting on the black community. Um, and, and that's just not enough. You can't when when you can't change the core function of an institution. So like the reforms isn't going to change like like what we're talking about. Uh, like I feel like up until now I've been pretty good at like thriving in systems that were not created for people like me. But that often means like giving away pieces of yourself or giving in to respectability polit- politics or like even being complicit in stepping on groups lower than me on the totem pole. And that shouldn't be the expectation. Like why is the expectation not instead like to tear down and recreate the system so that everyone is included? So, yeah, so the, if I can um, paraphrase, make sure I'm understanding you, the, an effort to, like the central premise of policing in your mind is, is not well-founded. And so if you're reforming it, you're not changing that, that central part of it. And that's really what you're trying to get at is the philosophy of what the role of a 
police department is and the proper functioning of a police department. Is that, yeah. is that right? Yeah. Okay. Have you seen this um, happen anywhere else that you have as an example for anybody? I think the first example people point to is Camden. Um, I think they're one example of an option. I don't think that they're the, like the gold standard, right? Um, one thing that they did was fire their entire police force. And then if you wanted to join the new police force, you had to reapply and retrain under the new rules. Um, so that's something that, do you know about those new rules? Like what was it added that would have improved the situation? It was more community based. Um, the police were what I what I'm not a fan of in that approach is the police were still walking beats fully armed in full uniform. They were more present in the community. And so that's not something that I'm okay. backing right now. But um, they were more relational in their approach to um being in the community and it was more about connecting people to services than it was about punishing people who were in trouble. Mm -hmm. Okay. They became like, they became like liaisons between the resources in the community instead of the people who were trying to solve the solutions themselves. Yeah. Um, what it, when I, um, put my mind in this space and kind of hear you talk about how you're trying, how you're, your efforts to generate change with this, it it sort of reminds me in some ways of how libertarians will pose like really extreme views of, uh, sorry, I use the word extreme again, but they will. I mean, they, they will promote very, they will say like, let's think of this drastically different way we could approach education. Like, let's say it was all completely privatized, government wasn't involved in education at all. And then the you know, depending on who you talk to, they don't necessarily mean like that's my ideal state and I need to get there. It's more just like let's let's think about that and then that generates ideas for how we can have less government involvement in things. Um, what it the similarity I would I guess what I'm thinking of here is in defunding the police. That's going to attract um, certain types of reactions from different types of people. It almost seems like the libertarian folks might be. Um, interested in that message too, as people who didn't think government should be involved in things. Um, in some ways, the Democrats are more um, helpful to, are more aligned typically with Black Lives Matter. But then you mentioned on social media, um, there was a pushback on that phrase too. So, do you, I, I'm I'm bringing this all together just to ask: Do you see one political party in general being more um, sympathetic or more helpful to Black Lives Matter? Um, or is it really, are you really like a separate group that's asking others to, um, you know, come along with you? How, the, how are those relationships going? Yeah, I mean, this is a call to all folks, regardless of political affiliation. Um, you know, black lives <laughs> mattering and, uh, and being valued uh, should cross any party line. Right. Um, but we see, again, no matter your political affiliation, there there isn't full support. Um, so this is a call on, on all folks to to push for for black lives. 
And looking at it practically, like when we talk about police budgets, those are controlled by like municipalities, by like our local town councils and city councils, which are nonpartisan. Partisan. Yep. Mm-hmm. Group. Yeah. Boards. So. Yeah. What are what are things that like? I mean, I I really first I just I'm kind of being quiet. I'm trying to really listen. Um, so I apologize. I'm not jumping in as much. But that what is the things that you want to see people that like, you know, white, white men like Tyson and I, and and people that don't necessarily, um, um, traditionally sit, sit with those black lives matter, but we are allies and we want to help, but we don't know what to do. Cause like we, we don't feel your pain, um, at least not directly. And so what are some things that, that people can do that like what, it's almost like I'm almost asking, like, I need someone to tell me what to do because I instinctively don't know. Yeah, is it, I mean, is it listening? Is that the first <laughs> step? Is it, is it doing what we're doing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's, you know, one of the steps would be listening, right? Black folks have been and are telling other folks what needs to be done, right? Y'all, we don't need y'all to tell us how to do it, when to do it. We're telling you exactly what the plan is. We just need y'all to jump on board. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, you know, listen to to what the black folks in your community are are saying that they need. Um, we we've got the plan outlined, right? Black lives Black lives matter, Bloomington normal. We have a list of demands. We we have a strategy on on how we get to achieve those things. We just need you know, non-black folks to, to hop on board and uh, stay committed to the cause, right? Um, it's not just fashionable to support Black Lives Matter. Like, you have to be committed to it uh, 100%. Yeah, I mean, I, I have I have seen some of the graphics and things that you uh, or your organizations put out over the last couple of weeks uh, specific to defunding the police, and they're very well put together. And, and I think, you know, it, it made me step back and think, a lot more about it, just seeing some of the disparities between what, our, how we budget and uh, fund our police compared to some other, other things. Um, yeah, pause on that for a moment. Can we take a just a moment to say again that it would take 1.5 million dollars to effectively eat, like erase homelessness in Bloomington Normal. And over the next four years, normal police is projected to get three million more dollars in their budget. Half of that would erase homelessness in Bloomington normal. You know, like we're talking about police departments as having a quarter of the entire like discretionary budget for our cities. And I, I think so that, just to, that. Yeah. just to use that one point as an example. I think that helps clarify some of what you were talking about earlier. Let's use some of this money because, I mean, how much, how much, how often do police respond to homelessness issues? Where if we were to just redistribute those funds to get rid of homelessness, um, we would need that money in the police department anyway, right? Right. When you say defund the police, the first thing everybody is, says is, well, like, what about safety? You know, what? What? Who's going to help me when I'm in trouble? Uh, you know, and then when you actually break it down, like in normal alone, we have 92, 93 police officers and an average of like three violent crimes a week. So even if somehow all of those violent crimes happened at the exact same time, there would be 30 officers per incident. We don't we don't need we don't need that many officers to keep us safe. And by getting rid of seven and a half of those officers, we can like have enough 
funding to have a reentry program for in, formerly incarcerated males in our community. Yeah, that's that, those facts are very interesting to me because I, I mean, I mean, maybe it's just the way my mind works, but it's it helps me put it into kind of black and white, paper, you know, on paper to see, okay, that makes sense. Just move this over here, and that problem's not there anymore. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I really do. I saw those, those graphics for Bloomington first, and then just recently the ones for Normal, um, and it just made me. Th- I shared them with several people. It just made me think about what I thought your message was really being of just you know if we can move that, so. Yeah. A follow-up to that then is defund the police. There's no police. There's still going to be some crime. I'm, I'm going to concede that a lot of that crime will go away if we use those dollars pro- properly. But how do we handle the rest of it? And I, I think, uh, you know, we have community resources. Because you think about, like, when police officers show up, did they stop the bad thing from happening? Right. No. It's usually after the fact. It's after the fact. So, again, what what purpose does that serve? And and in terms of safety, right, like black folks are over police. Um, When I see a police officer, I don't feel more safe. I feel less safe. Yeah. Uh, And I mean, using the counter argument, right, I should feel more safe because there's more cops in my community. No, I feel less safe. So when we talk about safety, safety for who? Who are they protecting? Not me, that's for sure. and so, again, police are, are not showing up until, until after the fact. Um, and after the fact, how much good does that do, right? That's not restoring any sort of, you know, peace or, or whatever it is that, that I need. Um, I can get that from other outside resources, right, uh, depending on whatever the, the issue was. I think the point is that like we we believe we can do so much better, and maybe we don't have all the answers yet because this is this this is going to take a working through, right? We're going right. to be a step yeah. by step, and um, I think that you know that there's there's people always or people in power, so like on the council will say, well, it's not so easy to just move the money. Well, yeah, we know that, like we know that, but the <laughs> money is there, and it's your job to like come up with the creative solutions, right? Yeah, no, I, I agree, and I, and I think, um, I think what you guys are doing, from what from my perspective as an organization, is good because your your first step is just making everyone question what's going on currently, um, and, and I mean it's done that for me. I mean, just hearing your hearing both of you talk about how more police in your neighborhood and that makes you feel less safe, like I know that I've heard that before, um, but like when I really digest that, it makes me feel all. Like, I don't know what the feeling is. It just makes me feel crazy inside um, to think that, you know, there are people in, in, in my town. It's not some other faraway town that's, that's living through that. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that, crazy. that really resonated um, with, with me personally. I, I, uh, I grew up in Europe. I'm American. I grew up over there. I moved here at 18. And um, I was a kid, and so I didn't really – I don't really know – what exactly the policing philosophy difference is, but I know you didn't see police cars very much in the Netherlands and Belgium where I grew up. They only really came if there was some kind of problem. And I remember very viscerally the first few years I was here having that exact same feeling of like, why are all these police driving around all the time? Like what, what is going on here 
what's so wrong here that you just need people like cruising around looking for people doing stuff wrong. Like it's, it doesn't need to be this way. And so I'm, um, I'm, I'm extremely sympathetic to that. Um, and you know, are there others who don't have that association with police, others who see a police car cruise through their block and they think like, Oh good, that's keeping the bad people away. They're, they're protecting me. Such a different experience that they would yeah. have with it. it. It's yeah. just so hard to understand that. Um, for, I mean, I get it. It makes sense to me. And, and I like intellectually, I get it. Um, but like when I start to feel it, that's when it like, it just gives me this um, emotional feeling that I can't, I can't wrap my head around, I guess. There's, um, I've noticed already in our community, um, like, okay, so I just graduated at ISU and I got a like care package from one of my jobs there. Um, and the bag was from the ISU PD and it said, hashtag our cops care on it. Right. So <laughs> cinnamon's laughing. Um, but I mean, it, it's, <laughs> Then we kind of get into that conversation of like, are there good apples and bad apples? Are people saying, well, we can fix all those problems if we just like hired the right cops or trained them to be nice enough or let them walk around with an emotional support dog like they do at ISU while they're still carrying their guns in the middle of the day? Like, so it's, but I don't think we can just, we can, as long as hashtag our cops care, it'll be okay, but. That's yeah, there's a hashtag. <laughs> there's a hashtag for it. I mean, we gotta be okay, right? We have a hashtag. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And also, I would think someone who's gotten chased by a police dog um, in the past probably doesn't find that police dog to be very comforting when they're walking around with it too, right? Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. um, so we we talked a lot about policing here too, but that's that's not everything that Black Lives Matter is about. Um, I know you talk a lot about schools too, so. Um, what are the what are the reforms you'd like to see in high schools and universities in particular? Yeah, so a lot of what we've heard from uh, the community is one police out of schools, uh, but I mean we we've talked a little bit about that, but then two thinking about what is the educational system supposed to be doing, right? Uh, they're supposed to be teaching us about our history, uh, and what we see is the history that is being taught is not representative of of all folks. It is very centered around uh, white, cisgender, straight males, um, and so that doesn't include black folks um, in any sense, again, except Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That that's our that's our one go to guy. Like a very white uh, we can only have one. Of, a very whitewashed version of right. Dr. MLK Jr. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I mean, more more teaching around our history because Black culture, Black history is American history, right? Uh, <laughs> so so why is that not being included? Um, and then again, in terms of what what is the school system supposed to be doing? Well, it's supposed to be teaching us, uh, but black folks and black kids are being pushed out of AP classes. They're being um, that school to prison pipeline, right? They're being uh, punished at disproportionate rates. And then when you have police officers in schools, that punishment turns into an arrest, which turns into 
uh, a lifelong, mm-hmm. you know, just. Yeah, you, you got that. Yeah. You, you got um, that ball and chain around your ankle for the entire time, right? Yeah. Right. Um, so when you, um, you said pushed out of AP classes, are you referring to like being discouraged from doing that by teachers and advisors? And are, is there something in particular with that that you're referring to? I hadn't heard about that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So being discouraged. Um, and then also, I mean, it starts with funding from schools, right? And so you look at the predominantly black schools here in Bloomington mm-hmm. versus the predominantly white schools, the funding there. And if and if we're not at the same level, right, again, who gets into those AP classes? Who has access to the tutors? Who has access to uh, the technology and other supports that is needed to succeed in those classes, and then even culturally, like I was an honors and an AP student when I was in high school. Um, and I, it was me and one other black kid in those classes. So, I mean, we had to choose effectively. I mean, my high school itself was a little more diverse than that. Um, but as a, you had to choose whether to advance your education in terms of honors and AP or to be like uncomfortable in that entirely white classroom to not have anybody who looks like you understands you or is teaching to you. Um, so some kids would choose to stay behind because it was safe. It felt safer. Um, and not safer in terms of like, they weren't ready for the challenge in their education, but safer, like physically and emotionally safer to be in a place that, um, like would actually teach to them maybe. I've heard people say that. Sorry, oh, go ahead. <laughs> I've heard people say that having academic success can lead you to feel like you're like betraying your yes. your peers. Is that, did you have that experience? Is that yes? That is my experience. Um, yeah, why are being accused of acting white or talking white um, for being in those classes, or then not being able to like go hang out with? certain people after those classes just because you're socially isolated from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a narrative of a, of a racist society, right? Uh, that is, that is a mentality that has been pushed on them and ingrained into those black students. And yeah, my only was... black teacher in high school, my only one was in a non honors like class. So I, and I took that class and she was teaching, it was like a U.S. history curriculum. Um, and I distinctly remember she would come into class and throw books on my desk. And those books were not homework for the rest of the class, but they were homework for me. And I was expected to have read them and come back um, and be able to talk to her about them. And these were books that were actually about my history as a black woman. Um, so she was able to do that for me in that classroom, even though we were in a system that did not you know, so encourage or support that. But I wouldn't have gotten that if I wasn't, you know, with the only black female teacher in yeah. my school. And and I want to add to that real quick, because that's another, you know, need for the community is to have more black uh, teachers in, in our school systems. Um, and for also for them to have the support for them to succeed, because I've seen this on ISU's campus where there's one black professor for how many hundreds of black kids. And that's the only place that these black students feel safe reaching out to is this one. Right. And so this one professor has to serve not just their one duty of being a teacher, but then being a social worker, being a therapist, a research person. um, And that's just not fair. And then for them to also be pushed out 
um, in that setting when they speak up about Mm -hmm. issues going on with black students or, um, you know, their experiences being black on campus. That's just not right. I remember, uh, um, I think it was a year ago or so when there was some, um, demands made of ISU. And I think it was another instance of me picking on language instead of content. Um, but I, I don't have it in front of me, but it was something about that concept of having like faculty that were dedicated to, teaching minority students or, or something like that. It, it read to me like saying we wanted to have segregated classes, which wasn't the intent, I'm sure. But um, kind of like, are you familiar with what the concept I'm talking about? And can you help, uh, can you help expand that a little bit for me? Yeah. I think one example would be I took, I'm a, I had a, a Latinx studies class and this class is supposed to be on Latin American identities and on Latin identities um, in the United States. Um, I walk into that class and it's the first class I've ever taken where majority of the students are brown and black and I'm pumped, right? And then our teacher walks in and is a white male. And so how do you have, and I understand that maybe his, (laughs) Cinnamon's laughing, I understand that like maybe his field of research. He's probably an expert on Latin American history in his field. I get it. But you cannot have a white professor teach a class of brown and black kids on Latin American identities, right? That class was so emotionally taxing to me that I stopped showing up. And I am like, I am your model student, right? So that like just shows (laughs) you how hurtful that class was to have to walk in and explain myself over and over to this professor who did not understand. Um, My final assignment, he made us talk he made us give a speech about what it like what it was like being black and you you don't get to ask a black person to sh- to share their experience when they don't want to um and it was I had to it was for a grade and that that did that did nothing for me right that was for the white kids in class not for my education um oh, so I think oh. it, one of the things we're talking about when like we need professors who are like appropriate professors to teach those kinds of courses how appropriate is it to like reverse that though and, and have a minority professor and then have the students be white that way like going up in education the white kids can learn about these different cultures that that age and so they don't go into the world never having any experience with that stuff does that make sense that does make sense yeah like 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 even when you made the comment about your professor putting those books on your desk and not anybody else's i'm like that wasn't part of the curriculum but why shouldn't everybody in that class be able to read that because that to your point it's all of our history. Um, well, I mean, because the curriculum was set, right? She had to teach to a textbook that did not include yeah. history. Um, uh, so that's why, and she, like, I did extra work. It wasn't like I wasn't doing the other work. <laughs> right, right. You know, I, I'm just, I was just thinking about how helpful that would have been for those other students to be able to read what you read. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've got young kids. I have a five, seven, and 10-year-old. And um, you know, my oldest one in particular is... Um, they go to Washington school. It is more diverse than I expected it to be. Um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy with it. Um, I wish it were a bit lower percentage white, um, more similar to the high school that I was in. Um, but, uh, you know, on the whole, it's, it's not as whitewashed as it could be. And it's enough that it does trigger some of these conversations with him. And, um, you know, to your point about MLK, I, I feel like he's, he's taught in the curriculum, but it's almost like they pick up like, well, MLK came and he solved racism. Wasn't that great? Like, (laughs) 
Um, you it's know, over. We can end like this what, conversation. That's what the first and second graders were like, man, things used to be bad when Grandpa was a kid, but then Martin Luther King happened, and we're all better now, right? <laughs> um, so, so we got it. We got to get a. I see that as like our responsibility as um, parents to help educate on that. And then, um, I'm. Uh, what was the other thing I was going to say? Oh yeah, he just um. Like, they're just starting to realize that this is a thing, and I wanted to make sure I heard what you guys are saying on this point too, because I think it's important. Is that um, there's there's like segregation that happens because of like pressure from the the majority whites, but then there's also that segregation that's coming because the black students have been taught that they have a certain role. Is that what I heard you say? Like it's, um, people will say like, well, the black students are self-segregating by all sitting together. Like that's, I'm not pushing them out. They're sitting together on their own. So that's, that's their fault, not mine, but it's a mentality that's been taught to everyone to impose on themselves. Am I portraying that right? And I think that's out of a need of survival, mm-hmm. of safety. Um, I mean, that, that, that's the way that I see it. Uh, and there's a book, uh, like, Why Are All the yeah. Black Kids Sitting Together at the Cafeteria? I think that's, like, the title of the book. Uh, <laughs> and it goes on to, to kind of explain that concept. But it, it really is out of this, this need for, for safety. And it happens, I think people forget that, like the dominant culture caters to white culture. So every space in our dominant culture is inclusive to white people. And we have to create our own spaces to feel that inclusion. So when we separate out, sometimes it's not about exclusion. It's not like we're saying, Hey, like white folks, you're not welcome. It's us for one minute having this, this area where we're included so that we can like fortify ourselves to be in the dominant culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, uh, it brings me to something I wanted to ask your advice on that, um, as I've been having conversations with, with people, um, on these topics, cause I take it very seriously. I'm trying to figure out where my role is in this situation. Um, you know, risking missteps by sharing my view and then having other people share theirs. Um, something I have found that I thought was surprising was there's, there's people, there's white men who were raised in places where there were no minorities at all. And now they've, you know, gone to a all white college and now they work in a predominantly or exclusively white office or something. And, um, I've had some people say like, I wish I could form a relationship with a black person, but I just, I don't know how to, I don't know where to like encounter someone that's outside of my bubble. And you don't want to just like say like, you know, send a message to like Black Lives Matter and be like, hey, can I have coffee with a black person? You know, like that doesn't, because <laughs> that's not what you're talking about, right? But it's like there, I found that there is a will that wasn't present um, even like a couple years ago in folks to try to, to bridge that gap, but a lack of understanding of like how to do that authentically. Um, do you have any any advice for someone who might find themselves in that position? Yeah, I mean, black spaces exist. They're not uh, <laughs> exclusive where you, you have to have a black card to get in. Um, yeah. So, What'd be a good black place to try to, <laughs> black space to visit? <laughs> well, then there's the other, okay, so it's also, I think about pride um, too. Like when you have straight folks going to pride, like, like gay bars or sure. pride spaces as like, like, 
a fun Saturday night when that's like someone's that's someone's safe space. Um, so you have to be careful of that too when we're talking about this here. Um, I think maybe this doesn't solve the problem for um, like our homeboy who's in his white office right now trying to make friends, but it does start like in our education system um, for like when we're thinking about the next generation or even our current students. Like if we're being intentional about this as we're growing up, this isn't a problem that we face when we're, you know, our so, age now. To that, to that point, I raised my hand when you said people that grew up and all, you know, all white. I, I went to high school at Tri Valley out in Downs, and you know, it's like ninety nine point nine percent white. Yeah. And we've, I moved to Bloomington immediately after high school and been here ever since. But when we had my daughter, who's now eleven, uh, we had thought about going back out to Downs just because that's where I grew up. Knew a lot of people out there. Um, whatever happened, we didn't get to. And she, she went through K through five at Irving and in, in Bloomington. And like, after the first year, I remember just going, I don't want to leave this school. Like she was getting such, um, better experience of the world than I got, um, growing up that I just found that invaluable. Um, I just didn't want to take her from there. I'm like, this is her, you know, just, she didn't see all the, she didn't see differences or anything until she got older and people started talking about it. And that just, that was really awesome to me to be able to witness as someone that grew up in the exact opposite situation. Um, I think that's where you have the generational change is just being willing to, um, get outside that generational comfort zone that, you know, your parents were in or that you grew up in and, figuring that out on your own. I mean, I didn't feel like a plan I wrote out, like I'm going to make my daughter more <laughs> racially acceptable or, or whatever. It's just, um, I saw, I witnessed something. I'm like, this is cool. She's already got a, um, better view of the world at her age than I did. And I think that's cool. And I, and I just, I made the decision to keep her there throughout and, and stay in Bloomington because of that. And I think that's to your point, Radiance is just trying to make the next generation be a little bit more acceptable than the, than the, and for the people who missed that opportunity, who didn't get that when they were growing up, I would say the first step, um, an easy step, is diversifying your media. Like when you scroll your Instagram feed, who do you see? Is it Does it all look the same? Is it all the same ideas? Um, that is a first step. Like, right, it's not... It's not your one token black friend's job to be the entire voice of the black people to you, right? Like black yeah. people are not monolithic. You don't get to keep pointing at um, that one black person that grew up and downs with you as the only as your only source. Um, so, like, I think to, I mean I had to do that um, for other groups right um, on my media um, just so that I made sure I was hearing voices and seeing pictures like God seeing pictures of people that look different than you on your media and hearing their voices. And I think that, I mean, I, I don't know what your thought is on, on like black history month, so I won't go into that. But like, I think that's the idea behind things like that is to like, as a white person to say, Hey, it's black history month. It's almost like a reminder of like, let's, let's educate ourselves a little bit more now. And then maybe some of that will trinkle out throughout the rest of the year. So it's not just in February. And, and, and eventually over time, that just becomes part of all of our media or all of our, you know, the movies we watch or the books we read or those types of things. Um, but it's just a reminder for us once a month or once a year to, Hey, we should, we haven't done any of this. We haven't diversified our media enough or we haven't watched, you know, enough different types of movies or anything like that. Um, okay. I think that's helped. I mean, that's what the, the recent, um, 
the recent things that's happened uh, with with race in the world has triggered my family to do um, is, is start, you know, Netflix put on all these different documentaries and stuff. And so we sit down and watch those and with my 11 year old and she asks questions. And a lot of times they're the same questions I have, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're all reading different books right now and just trying to and, and listening and just trying to educate ourselves and, and get to a spot where we feel like we're at least adding value and not just being standbys and watching situations not get any better. Um, I think that's what we're trying to do and and wrap our heads around new situations that we have never dealt with uh, directly, but how we can impact those positively in the future. So I don't know, hopefully that helps. Um, It's just as a reminder to keep diversifying that. I think that's a great point. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm curious to see if you agree with the, a piece of advice I've given to those folks is I've, I've said, I think trying to, I know that a place is volunteer opportunities, volunteering with organizations that you don't, you know, they're outside of your work where you may encounter people who are from different walks of life as you. And then when you're volunteering, you're, you're doing something constructive together and you're forming a relationship on something first. And maybe that leads into, um, you know, a conversation and an enlightenment, but like it, it seems inauthentic to me to say like, my goal is to, like meet someone who can talk to me about what it's like to be black. It's like you form a relationship first and then you can, then you can have that conversation. Does that seem right to you? Or is that, does that seem like it's misguided? I mean, I'll speak for me. It feels yeah, a little icky. Uh, Uh right. Because it's like, okay, you're not just going to outright ask this black person, hey, what is it like to be black or, or you know, uh, but that is truly your intent uh, and, and your goal there um, because the the goal of the relationship is not to, to learn from one another or to whatever that volunteering is supposed to be, but to, you know, get to know this person. Uh, so I don't know. Something about it feels icky to me. I think, I mean, at least this is kind of, this is the advice that I would think to give is just get to know the person who like happens to be a minority or happens to be black. Like the, you know, when you get to know anybody, you over time learn about their history and learn about their family and learn about their traditions, no matter who it is. Um, and if that person is black, then you're going to naturally start to learn more of those things. And, and you shouldn't go up to someone because they're black with the intent of like, this, they're going to be my, they're going to be my teacher on all things black now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, developing a friendship because we're all people and we can all get along and then learning more about your new friend, I think is where that, where that's going to develop in your own mind. Yeah. Well, I feel like we're talking too much. Um, let me turn it back to you guys. Uh, so, since 2016, Cinnamon, since you've been doing this, what are some of the things, the successes that the group has had that you're most proud of? <laughs> um, I mean, all the things, because all of <laughs> all of the trials and tribulations that we've gone through and, and everything that we, we do is a success, cause, because it takes a lot of work and effort to uh, to make even the small changes. So, um, I think about the, uh, public safety and community relations board, the PSCRB board, right. That took a huge, you know, that was like a, almost a two year fight just to, to get that 
uh, done in our community. And um, I think about the relationships that we've made with uh, community members and, and other institutions. That That's a success to me, right? The more people that we have being involved in BLM um, and, and understanding, you know, what Black Lives Matter means and, and what our goal is, that's a success. So I think everything that we do <laughs> is a success. Um, shutting down the Jefferson Street Community House. It was, they, they, they called it a community house, but really what that meant was just more policing on the west side. And we saw right through that. Um, I, yeah, so I would just say everything. Everything obsessed <laughs> <assessed> me. <laughs> um, another question I had about them. What is your relationship to the national movement is there like a national black lives matter and then you there's like spinoff groups from it or how does that how's that relationship look yeah so there's a national organization um and then there's different chapters throughout the u.s uh but if you look at the national organization what they say is you know just just because we have chapters doesn't mean that, um, like you have to be a chapter to be doing something right. So like black lives matter is bigger than just, Hey, we're an organization. Like this is, this is a movement and, and everybody's, uh, invited into this movement. So we're not, uh, officially like a part of this, uh, like a chapter, but again, we don't need to be right. We're black folks talking about the things that we need here in our community and that's enough to be a part of black lives matter how would how would you describe like obviously i think almost everybody has heard of black lives matter so this might be a dumb question but like (laughs) if if someone had never heard of black lives matter and you had described to them what you do and what your like what your mission is or, or vision how would you do that i would say we're a group of folks who believe that Black Lives Matter. They should be valued, supported, loved, uplifted. And we are doing things to make sure that 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 is a true statement. Right. Um, I think it's as simple as that, at least to me. Do you Radiance, see- I don't know if you want to add in. Um. I mean, yeah, echoing what Cinnamon said, but then, I mean, I guess the point of Black Lives Matter is that, like, we are, we're a people's movement. Like, this is a movement from below. Like, that's what we do as a group um, is, like, we're organizing to get exactly what Cinnamon just said, like, to be a reality. Do you, do you see most of your time since the formation of the local chapter in 2016 as being, um, reactive or proactive to certain problems that may come up in in Bloomington normal? I think it's both. Um, You know, tomorrow something new could happen and and we've got to react to that, right? Right. Uh, But we are extremely intentional about our goals and and how we get there. So there's a lot of strategy put behind um, our efforts and our demands. So we are very proactive, but, you know, you can't predict what's going to happen tomorrow. So, you know, sometimes you do have to be reactionary. Uh, 
Well, and some of the things that are happening, like in the, this current historic moment, are things that BLM's been talking about for years. You know, like we had this end cash bail campaign for years. Like we believe in like decar like decarcerate and and um, these are things that are now part of the national conversation, but that Black people have been talking about for a very long time. Yeah, we didn't touch on that one. Um, can you uh, talk about the Talk about that topic, the ending cash bail, the the need and the thought on that one. Yeah, so uh, what what we're trying to do is, you know, basically folks get arrested for some sort of crime, right? Um, judge sets a bail, and then if you have access to that wealth, to that money, you can get out, right? Because if a judge sets a bail... That means you're not um, uh, like a harm to the community, okay? But if you don't have access to that wealth, that means you sit there. What happens when you sit in jail? You lose your job, right? If I didn't show up at my job for Uh two, a day, one day even, two days, three days, I would be fired, okay? So I would lose my job if I had kids, right? Lose your kids, your house, uh, and, and it's just a domino effect. And so what what we see is that bail disproportionately affects black folks, women, poor people, and, and that's not right, right? So if you had access to that wealth, you could get out and maintain, you know, whatever you needed to do in the meantime. Uh, and again, those folks who have bail, they haven't been convicted of any crime. Right. That's something that we we all believe is innocent until proven guilty. Yet you're sitting in jail. That doesn't seem like innocence and, and freedom to me. So that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, let me just ask some follow up questions so I can wrap my head around it. Uh, so let's say that you get released um, because there's no bail and you leave like you skip. Like what's the, what? What happens then? Who enforces that? Because that—that's the point of the cash bail, right? Is to have some sort of enforcement to make sure you come back. Yeah, the judge sets a bail based on those factors, but whether you're a danger to society and whether you're a flight risk. So the bail would be higher, um, or the bail wouldn't exist, right? If because like, the judge can set no bail, no bond. Um, and then they're saying that, like, we have to keep you because we don't believe one, you're either a danger to society or we don't believe you're going to come back for your court date. If a judge sets bail, then, like, you are good to go. Right. You as long as you have those funds. So it's it's not um, our job to then say, no, people have to stay there because, like, we don't believe that if people are rich enough, we don't believe that they have to stay there. So why do we believe that for poor people? Like I said, that make that makes sense. But so if the, if that was to be gone, if we no longer had that system, um, and the judge would only probably not allow people to go out prior to court date if they were dangerous, but then there's still going to be some of those non-dangerous people that the, that would go and leave the state and never come back for a court date. Like how do how do we manage that within our system mm-hmm. if there's no yeah. cash? I mean, that, you might that not have pers- any, I don't, it's not your job to solve all these. I'm just asking. Mm-hmm. As up. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the percentage of people who do that is slim to none. I mean, okay. obviously it exists, but it is very minuscule. Uh, the percentage of, of folks that actually do that. Um, and, and what we see is, you know, people say, oh, well, they might not show up for the next court hearing. Yeah. Sending out 
text reminders. <laughs> is an easy way. Seriously, yeah. is an easy way to I'm get folks because of the simplicity. Yeah, right. Or uh, folks Making don't have access sure to transportation. Have transportation. Yep. <laughs> right. So it's like, can I get a couple of dollars to get an Uber ride or, or whatever to you know to get to my court date? Um, and then also to get back to this court date, I'm gonna have to miss work. Is that gonna be an excuse thing? So you know it. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I, I would I think also there's some again privilege coming in that perspective, because if someone doesn't have enough money to pay bail, they probably don't have enough money to all of a sudden just like rent a U-Haul and load their stuff in it and go have someone else to live with in <laughs> Iowa or something. Right, too. Um, and without even looking at the data, I would be shocked if it doesn't show that bails are usually set higher for black people than they are for white people because of a perception of more flight risk, right? Um, Absolutely. We see that time and time again. Same offense, uh, di- you know, different bail and sentencing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's yeah. just not right. Bias mm-hmm. in the system there. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, I had one more thing scribbled down. Um, we're getting over an hour now. You guys have been very uh, generous with your time. Um, there was something that uh, you said at the beginning, Radiance, that caught my attention, um, talking about this message that we're all the same and that that's, um, that can be a very – it can end up being a very exclusionary message. And I think that comes back to the all lives matter response to black lives matter. Um, so maybe we can help kind of converse about that a little bit and maybe someone whose inclination is towards that can help understand better. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what's baked into that statement for you? Yeah. I mean, I think at its core, like what I, what I'm trying to say is like, I don't see color is not the solution, right? Like color blindness is not the solution. The, the solution is like <laughs> seeing the color and then like knowing, um, if you, the the idea that like we're all God's children, yellow, red, black, white, purple, green, whatever, is like what I grew up on. And um <laughs> all it did was cause me to like internalize racist messages. Um and that was its effect on me as a black person. So then what it does for um white folks or people who are part of the dominant culture is it like erases from their mind it, it makes them ignorant to problems around race right if you can't even talk about race because race doesn't exist then how can you talk about problems of racism um so we, we ha- it has to be something that's like uh, that's a part of the conversation instead of trying to erase um if in saying that you're colorblind what you're actually doing is ignoring the issues you're not you're pretending they don't exist doesn't mean they actually don't exist Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I see it like trying to find a balance because that was definitely the message I got um, in my childhood too. Is that the goal is to like recognize each other's common humanity, and you can mm-hmm. go to you can go back to Martin Luther King Jr. Right? Let's <laughs> talk about him again, you know. Um, and you know that that was an important thing to realize for the for a system that was making very firm distinctions of like you know, firm segregation of like laws that say black people can't do this and that and separate water fountains and stuff. Recognizing that common humanity was a step forward for that. But then, um, I think I personally got stuck there of almost like I said, you know, my 10 year old was of like, well, that's the solution, right? We got to all be the same. And now being challenged to be pushed a little bit back is what I'm hearing of saying like, yes, our common humanity is the same on the whole. People are, wanting um 
you know, there's a phrase, we all smile in the same language that I, growing up international school was very important to me. Um, but if I'm understanding right, is that that makes us blind to the, the differences that really do exist. There is a material difference of having dark skin in America and just pretend like you don't see it doesn't make it go away. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. And if we're going to really get into it, um, if when I, when you th- when you talked about those drinking fountains, what it reminded me of is you know black people. It was mostly upper middle class black people then um, had this idea of respectability politics. Like if we just conform to what white people are and want us to be, then um, they'll give us equality. So you know that's why you saw everybody out in their Sunday best at these marches because it showed the inhumanity of having like police dogs released at people like who are dressed to the nines like in their Sunday best. Um, and that's great and it works to a point, but it also like denies like um, like we shouldn't have to conform to a, a, a palat like what's the word a palatable like acceptable version of ourselves in order to be worthy of equality and human dignity. Um, we should be allowed to be different and have like our culture should be allowed to be its authentic self and still deserve equality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Goes, goes all the way back to the hair, right. Of like, mm-hmm. um, as such, I can see why that's such a symbol now as we talk more because of you, I understand that it's, that it's not a pleasant process to get your hair straightened <laughs> that, to try to look like, look like you're uh, look like Becky. Right. So, um, Becky with the good hair. <laughs> <laughs> I just actually pulled that name out randomly. And then I realized that that was a, that's actually, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, um, I guess if people want to learn more about the movement, if they want to join or um, maybe just are more interested and want to see what's going on about it, um, what's a good way to get to follow you guys? Where are you at on social? Yeah, so <clears throat> we have, excuse me. Okay. Uh, we have a Facebook page, uh, Black Lives Matter uh, Blono, and then our email is Black Lives Matter Blono at Gmail. Um, we also have an Instagram page, so like, share. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's coming up. Like we've been having, we have been having a community meeting once a month this summer. Um, I don't know how soon this podcast will air, but we have one tomorrow, um, and then we'll have one again the first weekend in August. So coming out to those, something exciting starting um, after this meeting is we're going to start getting into working groups. Is the vision? So we've been talking a while about like what this movement means and what we want um, in our community, and now we're going to like get in working groups and start you know, putting like some tangible action into it. Um, and everybody's invited into those working groups. Um, so that's, um, that's Sunday at what, at what time and where? Sunday at six at Miller park, um, outdoor okay. Miller park. And right. then I, th- so you, you guys usually meet at like the stage area, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. I'll, um, just for that, I'll get it out tonight um it's saturday when we're recording i'll get out tonight so people can <laughs> check it out in the morning maybe they can get there since that's timely so um well you guys have been great to talk to you've been very generous with your time you've been generous towards justin and i trying to work through this and you know sharing some of our, our thoughts and perspectives and helping um 
helping us grow with this. So I, I really appreciate it. Appreciate you coming on. Yeah. I, I, this helps me so much. So I, I, I can't possibly express the gratitude. So thank you so much. Um, just having these conversations, I think is what we need to see more of. Thanks for having us on. Yeah. And one last thank you again to Play Normal Esports and um, Normal Gadgets for being our sponsor. We hope that they can reopen up and we can record these things in person again in the Play Normal Esports studio because setting up Skype meetings is not my uh, not my type skill, not my top skill as we found out. But um, Normal Gadgets is still open to fix anything that you have that's broken. You bring in your cell phones, bring in your laptops. They can take a look at them. I just recently had a really good experience with a broken laptop laptop with them where they were very prompt and professional and um and also play normal esports is opened in a limited way and uh, doing a summer camp check out their website for details and we are done 